Adam Von Goodkin, that's your real name, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying, because for the nature of branding, I don't know if you knew this, but your name anagrams to gonna omit vodka. <laughs> that's fantastic. How funny is that? Clearly, when you're in the gin business, that's right where you want to be, especially since you've been saying vodka is dead and gin is in. <laughs> Heavens, look at this backdrop we're looking at here. Where is this? Uh, this is my office in Connecticut. So it's actually an old witch hazel distillery. <laughs> the attention to detail of the science of being Adam von Guten. I, I, I want to talk about, especially given the fact that I've interviewed a lot of CEOs and some are more enthusiastic frontmen than others. And I would put you at, you know, <laughs> at, at, at the upper end of the scale. Because I think you're particularly interested in creating a, an emotional experience, you know, building an entire narrative, an entire story behind the big purple bottle. And uh, anybody who can do that, to be a signal in the noise when you're trying to serve spirits, that's got to be a hell of a climb. You got it. You've totally nailed it. Yeah, absolutely. You, you have to be kind of committed to the whole DNA of the product or what I call the brand's reason to be. And I think that that has to be like all pervasive. Like it starts with you and then it kind of infects the team and then it infects the distributor and then it affects the retailers and then ultimately infects the consumer. So it's gotta be, it's gotta be real. You can't really fake it either because, and if you do, I think people will know. Otherwise it's boring. The journey is boring and everything's boring. I mean, it's, it's, um, we live in a world where, where, you know, there's a million boring brands out there of, of all types and all different industries. And I think if you're going to be in business, I was just giving a, another CEO talk, actually. And I said, uh, the CEO or the entrepreneur really is the software coder for reality. And it's like everything we're doing, like the laptop we're talking on, the chair I'm sitting in, the lights behind me, every single thing was invented by an entrepreneur who then had to have a team and, you know, execution to bring it to market. But, we, you know, entrepreneurs were coding the reality around us in real life, in real time. And I've, I find that to be a fascinating way to look at it. Did you, were you watching Downton Abbey one day and you said like, I wonder if they have any 1300 year old lavender. <laughs> let's go. Well, do they have any gin there? Let's, let's, maybe we should make gin with them. Let's who, who's in charge over there. Lord and lady, somebody, let's give them a ring. There was actually quite a journey before Hyder Castle Gin was created. Having opened one of the first distilleries in Connecticut since Prohibition, I learned that was the, the industry, Onyx, right? That was Onyx. yeah, our Onyx Moonshine brand, which was kind of a tribute to my family's heritage in the liquor business. I discovered in my twenties a passion for distilling and for wine making and for all things kind of the craft and art of beautiful alcoholic beverages. And when we launched our our distillery in Connecticut, which was very small, I was delivering you know out of the trunk of my car. You know, I can tell you that that exactly 26 six packs of moonshine fit into a sob. And uh, so, I mean, so we were farming, we were distilling, we were bottling, and then we were delivering and engaging with customers. So I was kind of living and breathing every single piece of the supply chain for how a spirit comes to be. And we built the brand that way. And I got to know hundreds, if not thousands of retailers by name and bartenders and restaurateurs and got to kind of learn their lives and, and just all of that. And so, which you don't really appreciate when you're, you know, when you're not in business, cause you're not getting the behind the scenes talk. You're just a consumer, you know? Right. So from there, it was, uh, 
a desire to do a project in the UK. You know, I'm, I'm of, of English heritage and my family came from there to New England and, and have been here for a long time. And I've been going back to England for 20 years with my wife, you know, every year, every other year, and just love it there. So I wanted to do a project in the UK, but I didn't know what I wanted to do, where I wanted to do it or what the product would be. And so my wife got me watching Downton Abbey, which I actually avoided for the first couple of years. I was like, I don't want to watch this. And I fell in love with the show, like a couple hundred million other people on the planet did. And then one day the show ended and there was a PBS special airing next. And it was like, stay tuned for Highclere Castle, the real Downton Abbey. And I was like, oh my God, it's a real place. I gotta, I gotta watch this. So we, we watched the show and for like an hour, I'm learning all about Highclere and it's interviewing Lord and Lady Carnarvon. And I'm like, oh my God, this place is, this place is stunning. And, and, and this couple are beautiful. And, and everything about this story is incredible. This is where I should do my next brand right here. So I sent the most random email in the world out that night to like info at Heichler Castle, you know, whatever was on their website. <laughs> info at Heichler Castle. Yeah. Like dot UK. Oh, dot UK. Yeah. It, literally, literally dot co dot UK. And uh, I didn't expect, you know, any, anything back or maybe I'd figured some office person might call me or something. And, and the next day the phone rang and it was Lord Carnarvon, you know, the owner of Heichler Castle, you know, godson to Queen Elizabeth, you know, an amazing family history and, and so we spoke for like an hour and we really, really connected quickly. And um, next thing you know, two weeks later, I'm on a plane with my wife to go stay at Highclere Castle for the weekend. <laughs> and that began kind of a, a year long exploration activity on the business. And really, I think the formation of a friendship, which I think any business partnership worth doing should start with trust and friendship. And I got to learn kind of the inner workings of Highclere and the estate, which inspired me more on the story of the brand and why this brand exists and what it means and kind of represents. And then we worked on the recipe and all that. What I love about this is, you know, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs, or at least interviewed a bunch and interviewed a lot of influencers as well. And the mantra throughout everything was like, just ask, you know, yeah. I mean, the worst that could happen is they say no, but I mean, what you took that? just ask and writ at large. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. I mean, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And I've never been shy about going after an idea or something that I, I see. I have no absolutely zero fear or qualms with that. And I think that is helpful because I think we're trained, we're trained by the system and we're trained by society to be uh, risk averse and to be afraid to kind of go after or just come out with what we are looking for, what we want. Luckily, that's not something that I've had much experience with, sometimes probably to my own um, demise, but most of the time I feel like it's, it's more of a, a help than a hindrance. <laughs> and speaking of being a help more than a hindrance, welcome to episode 241 of the successfully funded podcast brought to you by KiwiTech, a growing ecosystem of entrepreneurs, investors, mentors, accelerators, incubators, and corporations. We help early and growth stage startups build viable products, drive traction, raise capital, and scale their businesses. Now, before we get started, uh, we do have a bit of a disclaimer I'd like to read. Uh, this is just a small portion of it. KiwiTech is not acting as a broker, dealer, or investment advisor and is not registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission in any such capacities. At no time does KiwiTech provide investment advice, endorsement, analysis, or recommendations with respect to securities. Information contained herein should be viewed for entertainment purposes only. 
DBTEC does not verify or assure that the information provided by any issuer offering its securities is accurate or complete, or that the valuation of such securities is appropriate. Investing in securities, particularly in securities issued by startup companies, involves substantial risk, and investors should be able to bear the loss of their entire investment. And if you enjoyed that mouthful, you can read the entire thing, which is an important consideration, at our podcast website, successfullyfundedpodcast.com slash disclaimer. I am your host, Doug French, and I am very excited to talk today with the CEO of High Claire Castle Spirits to talk about the molds that we're kind of born into and how he's kind of managed to break them since he was pretty young. Uh, it's the co-founder and CEO of High Claire Castle Spirits, Adam Von Goodkin. Welcome, Adam. Doug, it's good to be here with you. And uh, I appreciate that. We were talking about breaking the mold and, you know, I've read a lot about you and how these entrepreneurial spirits kind of took hold early on. But so what aspect of your childhood of how, the way you were parented, do you think led to this whole idea of like asking why? I, I get the impression that you were a handful as a kid. You do your, you know, you'd be, told, <laughs> you'd be told to do something and you'd be like, yeah, but why? Yeah, that's a very interesting assessment. Yeah, I mean, I've just never really been much of a rule follower. You know, I have a very close kind of extended family, but my, my at-home family was a bit of a challenge. And, and uh, my parents were divorced when I was very young. And I didn't see a whole lot of my father. My mother was, was kind of very busy doing the job thing and all that kind of stuff. So it was an interesting kind of dichotomy where, you know, during the week at home, we wouldn't have enough money for, for oil for the, for the furnace. So we'd be very cold. And then on the weekend, I'd go to my very successful kind of wealthy uncle's house and kind of uh, enjoy the enjoy the life and then ship back home where it was freezing. So it was kind of an interesting, um, I guess, flavor of both very different worlds. I'm sure that uncle laid, a, laid the groundwork a bit just because it's one thing, if you don't have much, you don't miss it. Yeah, he certainly did. I mean, he was, a, um, he was born a very poor black man in the deep South in the 1940s. Um, segregation was in play. And uh, he married my mom's sister, actually, before I was born. They've been married for like 40 years now. And um, he became a very successful global executive with Dell for all the Fortune 500 customers. So I, I was able to learn a lot about work ethic, I think, and professionalism. Also, how to dress like a gentleman and, and things like that, which were important when you're, when you're a young man. I never had any lunch money, and we didn't have a whole lot of food. So I started my first business really in school so that I could just simply afford, afford to buy lunch. <laughs> <laughs> I went to a Catholic high school in Hartford, Connecticut. There was a really trendy kind of cocktail bar because we had to dress up collared shirts and, and jackets and ties and things. What I figured out at about 16 years old is I, I leave school. I go to, to, to Hartford and I, I keep a briefcase in my trunk and I would, uh, I'd walk <laughs> an Alex Eaton vibe I'm getting here. Yeah. I'd have the purposeful stride right up to the bar and I'd say, ah, oh, Oh my God, today was a, was a tough one. And I had my briefcase and, you know, <laughs> walk into bars with briefcases, you know. Now that's the George that. Costanza influence as well. Cause you know, George Costanza famously said, all you got to do is look upset. As I walked right up to the bar and I said, you know, I'll, I'll take a Grey Goose Martini, you know, up dry and dirty, please. And I'd sit down and they would just serve it to me. And, uh, and I started to bring friends. I was like, listen, the trick is you got to put on a blazer, you bring your suitcase and we'll, we'll pretend to do business. And so we figured out how to hack the system a little bit. <laughs> I think that's a big, very formative thing to talk about, especially 
Now you say, I don't want to linger on this too much, but you say, how often did you see your dad after your folks split up? How old were you? I think I was eight or nine when they split up and yeah. um, I would see him on occasional weekends, but uh, you know, there was, issue, there was challenges with stepmothers and, and, you know, uh, all, all sorts of like family drama, like so many people go through. So it was, it was difficult. It was a difficult time of life, not really feeling um, that you have that kind of foundation at home, which I, I, I'm, I'm sure 50% of the people listening to this can probably relate to. I learned from it for sure. And it, it was very inspiring to me as I got older because um, from that, I decided to, my wife and I decided to kind of wait. We, we, we've been together since we were 16, uh, 17. So um, over t- 22 years, we've been together. And we decided to wait until we were in our you know early 30s to start having children, just to be sure that there was absolutely no chance at all that they would have to be you know, raised the same way. And I'm glad we waited because we also enjoyed our 20s and our early 30s a lot. <laughs> well, I mean, and that's a common theme. I've spoken to a lot of dads over the years. And when you see, especially really hands-on fathers out with their kids and people are thinking, wow, he must have had a great dad to learn from. Mm. And actually more often than not, the opposite is true. There's just a subconscious drive to be the father that they lacked in their own lives. And I've noticed that when you do talk a lot about, you give advice to entrepreneurs and you stress family a lot and how hard can that be? Especially, I mean, we all have a devotion to our families, but you clearly have a particular angle toward pursuing that and making the life that you wish you had when you were younger for your children. So how does you, how do you square that circle with all the demands of being the CEO of a startup, especially one that's so built around travel and parties and you know, a lot of stuff, alcohol that doesn't include children. How do you, um, how do you balance those two? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question that I've never really given much conscious thought to. I would say I have an excellent team. We've got a fantastic sales force around the world. So there's a lot of things that, that I don't have to physically or personally do, but I still have to travel a lot. I mean, we are available in seven countries and, you know, I live in the U.S. and High Claire, you know, base camp for the brand is in the U.K., you know, I have a, a, an incredible wife who's very, very dedicated. She, she, she's an attorney by trade, but only works half time. She's an amazing, you know, support rock for the family. And to be honest with you, the only gift that COVID gave us is that I was really able to get to know my kids at a couple of crucial years of their lives. My son is going to be five in a, in a week and my, my daughter will be um, three in a couple of weeks. So, and my wife is now pregnant with our third. So, of course, I was just literally launching High Claire the first two years of my son's life. So I was really gone a lot. But now, of course, as they become toddlers, it's, it's crucial to stay connected with them. So I, I'm fortunate. You know, I do travel a lot, but then I manage that and I, I don't participate in things. This weekend, I, I said no to a very uh, important thing because I've been on the road for the last three weeks, practically two weeks, just to be with family and to be with the kids run around in the sprinklers and all that kind of fun stuff. So you have to say no. Sometimes you just physically can't be at every single thing. And I'm, I'm a bit addicted to my work and I'm very proud of our work and what we're building. And, I'm, and I love it and incredibly passionate about it. So sometimes it's hard to say, you know, maybe it's best that I, I say no to this thing or why don't we space these meetings out? And I have a good, I have the most amazing team to fill any holes. Well, I'm really glad you mentioned your wife. And I think a lot of discussions I've had over the years have been involved. There's always a discussion of a supportive partner who's got your back and who kind of knows you and gets you out of your head when you need to get out of your head. 
how does having a supportive partner help even out the uh, the highs and lows? How's your mood level? Are you a volatile person, at least in terms of making sure everything is just so, so you can kind of craft this image you very clearly want to build? I don't think so. I'm, I'm, I'm rather go with the flow, actually. Hmm. I mean, I, I'm very particular about how the company and the brand is kind of managed and run. I mean, that's innately, I think, part of a personality trait. But, you know, I also have a promise and a commitment to, to Lord and Lady Carnarvon, who have trusted me in, in some ways with the keys to the castle and to help grow, you know, and maintain the castle for another generation. So I have an obligation to my partners and our investors um, in our Series A round who've trusted us with quite a bit of capital to get the job done right. So it's very much a point of pride. You know, all you have in life really is your reputation. And so we can't really afford to fail. That being said, you know, you're, you're giving me such thought-provoking questions. And one of them is, I think, with having kids. So before I had kids, I was, I think, wired a lot tighter. And one might think that, that by having kids, the stakes are up because now you've got to provide for the children as well as, you know, just your team or keeping the company kind of growing and going. I think for me, it was actually quite the opposite effect. I think having children helped to balance me a little bit to remember what matters most in life. And I think in a way through that, so sometimes when we are so hyper-focused on the results of a thing, that thing can avoid us. But when no, we yeah. allow the kind of natural energy of the current of life and the current of kind of the universe to kind of flow and also let your mind and your heart be at peace, when, especially when you can't control things, I think that that gives you actually a, an extra power, uh, an extra level of self-discipline, an extra level, uh, level of kind of wisdom and, and balance that you can then bring to your work in the office and in the company. So for me, having kids, I think, has helped me to get even healthier. And that was important because during COVID, you know, like, like so many other companies around the world, I mean, that was frightening. You know, I, I launched the brand after years of preparation. We launched the brand six months, a liquor brand. And then all the restaurants and hotels and Viking Cruise Line, our, our featured cruise line partner, they all closed. So our account universe opportunity around the planet cut in half. And all of our distribution partners became work from home. So we had no more salespeople on the road. It was absolutely horrifying. But at the same time, I think having the, the mentality of my kids and family are safe. My team is safe. My investors are healthy. Their families are okay. Okay, cool. Now let's reset and let's figure out how can we pivot during this global crisis and how can we react in a healthy way? I think that's balance. It's all about balance. The one stereotype of the CEO is a real driving force toward control or the illusion of control. And once you start having kids, which people famously describe as wearing your heart outside your chest, and you kind of recognize that whatever control you think you have in this world, you kind of don't because now you have your heart wandering around in little, you know, size three shoes and it's outside your body and you you want to hover but you also recognize that kids need to figure out adversity or like you I mean your kids are young but the bottom line is yeah 100 um, and, and, and the same can be extrapolated out i think to your team i mean i do i do have a tendency sometimes to to be very kind of um why are we saying it like this? We should say it like this. I, I don't like this design. Don't sell it that way. Sell it this way. It'll be more effective. So, but there's a difference, I think, between training or teaching and micromanaging. The same, same rule applies to children. 
not not saying that my team is like children, but when you're trying to get people on the right track to kind of get them to be successful in life, that there are some analogies there because that's that's really what you want for everybody is for them to get them to be successful in life. If my team is successful, the company is going well. If my children are successful, then their their, their lives would be happy and healthy. So that's what you're trying to help guide and usher into that. But there is a difference between teaching or coaching and micromanaging. And micromanaging is not a learning tool. And when you have a really great team, let them make some mistakes and learn from it. Talk about it and analyze it together. Don't micromanage it. They've got to be able to do a lot of these things without your input. And, uh, you know, it takes a while to get there, but I think we're there now. So I'm, I'm happy with that. Well, that's good to hear because I'm, I'm in that same space myself right now. I have one son in college and one son's about to start senior year. And we talk about college a lot. My older son and I talk a lot about college and I had a fantastic experience at college way back in the day, but I understand now that people are just rethinking the idea of what college should be, when you should go do it. And so you got to school and lasted about, you know, had a cup of coffee there. What was your college experiences like and uh, why was it so short? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I went to college. I was, you know, I was effectively told that my three options were the university, uh, McDonald's or the military. <laughs> And literally, that's what I was told. And so, you know, going to... Uh, sadly, McDonald's probably had the best food. <laughs> I, you know, I think for me, going to a Catholic school as well, it was, it was also called a college prep school. And so all of my friends and peers, like 100%. Yeah, but all the college prep school. And you're like, I'm not prepping for college. Sorry. Exactly. Exactly. So it's like, you know, oh, I guess it's, you know, another four more years of school. Of course, I had my family kind of helping to to kind of help make things happen, but it was essentially also going to be personal loans. Again, this was 20 years ago now, which is really bizarre for me to say out loud. But so I went and, you know, I was incredibly bored. And uh, I remember I, I was an international business major. I just didn't like it. I was being taught by professors who hadn't run any companies, who were teaching me international business and making us write business plans. And I got straight Fs. I completely couldn't, couldn't have cared less about homework. I thought it was all, the system was just ridiculous. And I, and I failed out. The school asked me not to return. And I said, well, good. <laughs> and I, I don't want to be back here. This is not what I want to do. And it took me some years to kind of figure out my plan. But that next summer, when I got back, I started amassing a 2000 book library and really just voraciously reading as much as I could on every topic. And I said, you know, this is, this is more fun. I can do it at my pace. And you know, it's with used book sales, it's practically free. And then after that, it was just about meeting people and learning from people that are smarter than you and spending time with the right people. And then just finding my own journey and getting to it instead of talking about it for four years. I, I'm not saying that, you know, my path is the easy one because it's definitely harder in some respects because you can never lean on that diploma to kind of just get a systems job, you know, in the system or TikTok, as I know one author <laughs> calls it. So I, you know, I've never, I've, I've never had a backup plan in that way, which is a little scary. Whereas brains like my wife who did really well at school and became an incredible attorney and doctors and, and scientists and all the people in the world, engineers and the people that we kind of need to make things happen, you know, that we need them to go to school, but they have a personality that's kind of fit for that. I think that, that, you know, in my case, and I'm in many other people's cases out there, that college is just not, not for them. That they're, they're not, that, that method, that kind of system for learning is not going to click with them to, 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 be, to help them be as successful as they can be, as fast as they can be. Oh, yeah, sure. It's a subjective yeah, decision. I mean, just to say it didn't work out for you is not an indictment of the system in general. It's just 
we should understand that it's not a cookie cutter uh, experience and everyone's a different cookie. So we should talk a bit about the spirits industry and how you pivoted into the spirits industry when you learned about your family's history dating back several decades. Actually, that's, that's incorrect. Okay, lay it on me. Let's correct the record. I discovered a very random love for distilling and making wine and beer. And when I decided to turn the hobby into a business and open the first distillery in Connecticut since Prohibition, my grandmother told me the family history. So I didn't know. Yeah, I mean, okay. 200 year history of making liquor and prohibition and running speakeasies and having a very large legal and, and well renowned whiskey distillery. I didn't know any of that stuff until I started the distillery. My grandmother happened to mention it. <laughs> so you're I throwing went, the whole nature versus nurture debate into chaos just because here you were developing an interest in something without even realizing it's, it goes <laughs> into your blood for generations. Yeah, just genetic memory or something. It's very strange. <laughs> But then High Clear comes along. You get the recipe together. Whose work is the is the design? The uh, the purple bottle. Well, it was a, it was a wonderful team effort. I mean, we we wanted a purple bottle that would be very elegant and understated, as many British products are. There's a very important knack there to be both grand and quiet about it at the same time. So sure, yeah. We wanted an elegant bottle. The bottle shape is reminiscent of the main tower at High Clear. The purple is a kind of nod to, it's always been the color of nobility and, and, and royalty and the color of the church because- uh, Yeah, the, born to the purple. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. The, the bishops of Winchester used to live at Highclere before Lord Carnarvon's family in the 1600s um, moved into the properties. And then of course we use lavender at our gin. So the purple kind of speaks to those things. And we worked with a fantastic company out of the West Coast to help us develop that bottle. And the recipe was similar work. There was beautiful botanical gardens around Highclere. And when I saw them for the first time, it was like, oh, God, the, the ingredients are sitting right here, ready to be plucked from the oranges of the Victorian era orangery behind the castle to the lavender we used that was planted over a thousand years ago by the Bishop of Winchester. And, and we're the first uh, gin in the world also to use oats, which are grown on Highclere. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. What is whose idea was it to involve oats in the recipe? I mean, I'm sure you're toying with a lot of stuff, but. You don't normally associate oats with a with a gin recipe. Yeah, it was Lord Godarvin's idea. It was it was a brilliant idea, and I didn't think it would do anything uh, when he came up with it. We were twenty four recipe iterations in, like a year and a half <laughs> of work. We loved it, but it was like ninety eight percent there. It wasn't the absolute hands down best gin we had ever tasted in our entire lives after having tasted four hundred gins around the planet. It wasn't that yet, and we were trying to figure out what we could do to give it that extra thing. And uh, Lord Carnarvon said, why don't we try the estate oats? And I said, throwing oats into a botanical basket with a bunch of botanicals is not going to do anything but add a really weird starchiness. And in fact, (laughs) what it did is it created this kind of viscosity, this like thick mouthfeel of richness, of velvet cream on the palate that's really like sipping a very fine bourbon or scotch or cognac. And uh, I think it's a big differentiator for us because we're the first gin in the world to use oats. And I think it's really what's rocketed us into, you know, our over 60 international gold and platinum awards now. Oat is what did it. Yeah, I suppose. I'm glad you guys dismissed, uh, if hops ever came up, I'm glad that didn't come to fruition. Then you would have had High Clare IPA or something. (laughs) (laughs) Which, who's to say, right? We're going to talk about expanding the brand. So, yeah. um, The Lord and Lady seem on board to see what, uh, as long as this overall branding with the, the Downton Abbey house gets legs, which I'm, you know, I'm sure it is. Downton Abbey is in everyone's mind. 
And that's, I think, ultimately what you're trying to achieve here because, and again, I keep thinking of, of Ryan Reynolds and aviation, and I will talk about your competitors and just the overall headaches of trying to build a brand in a sea of brands. But clearly, you know, he's made aviation all about the cult of personality with him and his wife. And that seems to be the avenue of success. Like you want to create an emotional response. You want to, uh, I mean, one of my favorite things I read about you was the whole idea of sales is good business, but repeat sales is success. You know, for every celebrity backed brand, there's five celebrity backed brands that you've never heard of that are not doing well. I think that this, this kind of idea that a brand needs celebrity to work is, is incredibly misguided because people know of the big ones with these huge exits, but they don't really know of all the, the flops. Part of the issue with a celebrity brand is, you know, there's also a lot of consumers that don't trust celebrity brands with the assumption being that because it's a celebrity brand, that's all it is, you know, put the, this athlete or you know, celebrity music star up on a billboard in a loincloth and we'll sell tons of this vodka to unsuspecting, you know, idiots kind of thing. That's and an interesting it, detail to add, Adam, the loincloth. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's for us. I really absolutely did not want to launch a Downton Abbey gin. I wanted to launch a High Clare Castle gin. The fact that, that 250 million fans around the world know High Clare Castle as Downton Abbey is a massive bonus and gives us incredible legitimacy in terms of gaining PR and media and, and, and overall just recognition for the place. But for me, and I think for my team and certainly for Lord and Lady Carnarvon, this is about celebrating High Clare's history. This is a hundred years of drinking gin whilst hosting royalty, celebrities, statesmen, poets, artists at High Clare. And most of the world's most famous and interesting people have been to High Clare, many of them, for parties. And they've been doing gin there for at least 100 years we have records of. So it's about kind of toasting to the spirit of that. And then to make it, you've got these kind of all these botanical gardens around the castle that are there because they're pretty. So why not use the terroir that is the blood of High Clare, the essence of High Clare? Why not toast the kind of elegance of a bygone era? which is so beautiful and that Lord Lenny Carnarvon kind of still steward that. And why not liquefy all that into a brand because no other spirit in the world can do that. So they have to kind of work with overpriced marketing agencies in New York to craft and make up a story, or they have to kind of give a bunch of equity to a, a, a celebrity to kind of go on and do a few YouTube videos or whatever. For us, it's about the long play. I mean, Highclere Castle Gin will be here in 100 years, like Highclere Castle will be. That was always our commitment and our plan, to build a legacy brand from the very beginning. It may take a little longer because we could probably just give some equity or a bunch of cash to some celebrity to go on TV and fake it. But at the end of the day, if you're, if you're building a legacy brand like a Rolls Royce or a Burberry or something like that, that's not really the way to do that. Do that later when it just it's fun. Or it adds some exposure for the brand. But to build the brand as that is the brand, I think that's very, very risky. And nine times out of 10, it doesn't work. And it costs a lot more to build it that way. The consumer wants to understand why am I going to be loyal to this product? Why is it real? Why is it giving me a true experience? Why is this actual quality? Why is this actually the best thing I could possibly buy for my money? And, you know, celebrity helps to tell the story. But I think 
consumers today more than ever are, are sick and tired of buying fake stuff. I know I am. I think the consumer wants authenticity now more than ever. And our job is to give it to them. And the job of any company, I think that, that really prides itself on its consumer oriented mindset has that same, same mentality. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, I think the, a good segue point when we talk about the challenges over the next three years, because what I've seen, the bad news is there's not going to be profits in the near term, you know, but at the same time, the goal of like 4% of the high-end super premium gin market, which amounts to at least nine figures eventually. I mean, there are some very strong projections here going forward, but there's going to be some storm clouds on the way to get there. So what keeps you up? What's What specific challenges, A, are systemic to the spirits industry, and B, which challenges are on you specifically, do you think, as a company and as a product? Well, ultimately, our biggest challenge is that our primary competition are global players. You know, five or six kind of Diageo global. Yeah, just the big uh, mega boos. Yeah. Exactly. So we're competing with them, and they have a lot more capital than we do, and they're in a lot of markets, and they own most of the legacy brands. So the call brands. You know, something that, you know, when you walk into a bar and you say, you know, give me a x and x you know they they one of them likely owns that brand that you're calling for right they have they've been they've been around for a long time you know it, it takes a while to build a liquor brand you have to break through the noise it's expensive you have to have the right people in place you're going to make mistakes along the way and you're going to have to make adjustments every single day to how you kind of engineer success but that's the business that we're in considering most of our brand's life having existed during COVID, we've done an exceptional job because we're in 30 U.S. states and growing, 40 U.S. states with e-commerce, and we're in 27 EU markets with e-commerce and physically available in the U.K. So that's kind of unprecedented growth. You know, our, our sales- Since like 2019, right? That's when you started? Yeah, about yeah. six months before COVID, yeah. I won't say that we're on track exactly where we thought we'd be in 2019 because COVID obviously messed everything up. But I think we, we a lot of people stayed home and drank though. So that's something. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But we were just we were just beginning to pipeline and saturate markets and liquor stores. So we weren't available in all the stores to take advantage of that trend. Yep. So, that, so you know, we, we we were in pockets, but we worked, we were, you know, six months is not enough time to saturate a brand. It's more like three or four years. Especially because there's a grassroots element too. You want to take it on the road and get people to taste it, you know, have events. Uh, is well, that yeah. something you see you're, you're going to be doing to try and say, look, the proof is in the taste and you really got to figure out that these oats do not make this taste like oatmeal and you got to figure this out for yourself. Yeah. I mean, we, we have the benefit of Hyper Castle Gin being kind of three things. It's luxury, it's craft, and it's also kind of mass market. And it's where those three intersect, which does not happen very often in any consumer good product. You know, from our tactical perspective, we also have a lot of wonderful global relationships with big wholesalers and distributors, with very large strategic partners, with family offices and some of our investors. So we have an added advantage of, of kind of go-to-market speed inherently built in with the team that we have around us, the kind of high Clare family. At the same time, you can't spend money to skip over grassroots in-market guerrilla warfare building. And, and that is very, very real to us every day. I mean, we're in about 4,500 accounts right now, and it's growing every day because we have a tenaciousness with which we're going to market, telling the story, participating in events, liquid to lips, 
is getting people to taste the product and walking them through the story. So we're doing this in as scalable a way that we can. And one thing that a lot of new brands will do that I think is a mistake is spend money really fast. And they kind of blow the whole wad out, out the gate in the beginning. And then, you know, there's a bit of talk about it and then there's no cash left. And then you don't hear about that brand ever. Again. I have been on the wrong end of that equation personally, because I worked for a startup about 20 years ago and, you know, the CEO chose to put a whole lot of money into marketing and it was a lot of fool's errand. And before too long, my entire department was cut free. So yeah, I hear you. Exactly. So there's, there's a phrase I like to say, you just can't skip the work. If you have a billion dollars in capital, you can't skip the work. And so I think for us, it's about hitting those milestones that we've been hitting and continue to hit them. And we're projecting profitability in 2025. I think it might be sooner, depending on kind of market conditions and, and you know our ability to find talent and hire, which has been a challenge for us, like the rest of the world. Sure. Right yeah. And so yeah, I mean, e- even at 2025 profitability, when you factor in t- 2019, it's about a six-year kind of growth and penetration market. Not considering COVID, I would have guessed more like four to five years. But you know, we've got some delays with COVID. Get over it and get on with it, is what I say. <laughs> and you're poised to scale production once demand increases. Oh yeah, yeah. We've got our our supply chain is 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 rock solid. Our product is bottled where many of our competitors bottle their you know, million cases a year. Our gin distillery is the oldest gin distillery in England, but they produce about 80 million bottles a year. So we, we've chosen all the right, um, we've got wonderful supply chain partners so that as we grow, there shouldn't be any blips in, in any of that. There have been some issues recently with shipping from the UK to the US, just in terms of delays at the actual ports. Having to adjust and order product a little sooner and hope to get it here a little faster and a little fingers crossed with a little bit of planning usually gets us through. <laughs> yeah. This body of knowledge that you've amassed over the years, it seems, you know, you had some instinct for this clearly, but so where does the passion come from and what, what do you think is the most valuable lesson you learned about this kind of marketing and the attention you have to give to it? Well, there's absolutely no playbook for the liquor industry. Every couple of years, trends change, supply chains change. And every brand is fundamentally different and needs an entirely different go-to-market strategy. Really, that's the case. What I've been very fortunate to have and what I continue to constantly build is a wonderful network of advisors, of investors, of industry veterans who are always kind of in the wings there to to back up and support. We've got a fantastic advisory board. And so having kind of um, a diverse group of brilliant minds around me is something that I invest a lot of time into. Some of them are from the industry. Some of them are completely not. And often I find their advice to be even more valuable. And then we've got, you know, our industry veterans. So having that kind of group to lean on when I need wisdom or I need some ideas is fundamentally essential. In terms of advice for any entrepreneur or somebody looking to start a brand or a business, first and foremost, understand the industry inside and out. Like that's crucial. The liquor business is a really quirky industry. It was born in the U.S. out of prohibition. Every state has different laws. There's cultural differences in the liquor industry with how how things are done. In some respects, our industry is still operating like it's 1955 and very (laughs) kind of old school. And then there's the grain to glass component, right? There's farming. Then there's glass, then there's production, then there's marketing and sales and distributors and state registrations and you know global import, export. There's a lot of things that we have to manage on a daily basis to keep the business in the right place. So understanding the industry all the way through is, is, is the first step. I, I did it with my first brand, but it was a small brand with relatively small investment and 
you know, we were able to kind of figure things out. At the same time, you know, I, I think that having a very clear vision is crucial and having a reason for a brand to be or a reason for a business to be really solving some kind of a solution to a problem, really understanding how the brand will go to market with clarity and being able to instill that clarity simply to your team and then to your partners and then to your customers. Um, and, and then when all those things are working in conjunction correctly and all the pistons are firing right, and then every day there'll be one piston firing not right and you have to go in and make an adjustment. But when those things are all going right, then you've got the growth that you need to be successful. I call it engineering success because it's not luck. It is hard work and opportunity and it's daily engineering. Yeah, you make your own luck essentially because chance favors the prepared mind and everything else. 100%. There have been many liquor brands that have been very successful and do not taste good, but they've got great <laughs> team engineering success. And you've also got a lot of wonderful brands that deserve to be some of the best in their category who you've never heard of because they've never been able to engineer success. Yeah, they couldn't create that you know iconic absolute vodka art ad campaign. It makes you wonder how much of that vodka they moved just basically because their ads look cool and iconic and it's just vodka. Vodka is flavorless, odorless alcohol molecule <laughs> defined by the federal government. Well, I'm fascinated to learn more about how this is going to work out. Uh, in fact, if uh, potential investors or customers or anyone wants to learn more about High Clare Castle Gin, uh, where can we find out more about you? Certainly people can read about the investment opportunity and buy a bottle and taste it and have it delivered to their home uh, and learn a bit more about Heichler Castle and the estate and the gin and how it's made on our website at HeichlerCastleGin.com. There's a link on there to learn more about the investment opportunity as well. So HeichlerCastleGin.com has all the info and you can taste it too. Well, like with any investment, I think what you want to invest in is, I think you want to invest in quality of team, the long-term kind of vision of the brand and the company. And you want to ensure that you're going to get a good ROI, do the best you can to mitigate risk that you're going to get a good ROI. This capital raise will close in September. We will never do another crowdfund uh, capital raise again. So it really is a short period of time left. And um, over the last two weeks, we've been approached by a few family offices that are expressing a desire to take out the rest of it. So it may not even last till September. With every level that you invest, you get a lot more interesting perks. So most of our hobby investors have done 1,000 or 5,000, 10,000. We welcome anybody and everybody that wants to be a brand ambassador for Hyder Castle Gin at the $150 level or up. Uh, absolutely, you're welcome to, the, welcome to join the family and the journey. Adam, it's been great to chat with you about High Clare Castle Gin. I've been reading and writing about it for several weeks now, and I'm really eager to see where it goes. I think with a front man like you at, at the helm, I think it definitely has a Along, it's a great, it has a great path ahead, and I appreciate your time. Doug, it was a real pleasure talking to you. I think you have a, a fantastic outlook and really, really uh, fulfilling questions that make it easy. So I very much enjoy the conversation, and thanks for having me on your podcast. Well, and uh, congratulations on everything you've done so far, and all the best with child number three. That's exciting. Yes. Uh, when does that child arrive? That child is arriving in mid-September, about a week after I get back from Highclere Castle for a fundamental event that I cannot miss. Oh, wait a minute. So now your wife's due date is right around that time. So you're, you're dancing with death. This is the third time all three of my children have been born a week or two after I had to be at Highclere Castle for a critical event. Oh, God. <laughs> See, that's another supportive partner right there. They would put I up know. with that in the first place. Hey, hon, here's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All the best. Uh, and so thank you uh, for listening to episode 241 
of the successfully funded podcast. My guest has been co-founder and CEO of High Claire Castle Gin, Adam Von Goodkin. And we're going to be off next week for the July 4th holiday, but we will be back on July 12th. So thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.